doesn't have to be too detailed. I'm going to ask you for it in a minute or two. We've been going through on uh, Wednesday at noon, we've been going through the book of Isaiah together, and I'm reminded as we've begun at the beginning of Isaiah how much, <laughs> how much Isaiah 1 is kind of this testament to the world as we experience it, the world that Pastor Jeff just prayed for, a world that, you, you, you know, whether you read the newspaper, you turn on the TV, you're just driving down the street, you see it in so many ways, fallen, rebellious, broken under the weight of its sin. This is how Isaiah begins. This is sort of the Isaiah 1 world. But as you get to that passage that Becky read in Isaiah 11, we start to move to this vision of the world, not just as it is, but as it will finally be. We kind of have this extraordinary picture of creation that God has made, but it's now transposed into this perfected peace. And the word in Hebrew, oftentimes it's used as shalom, which is uh, a, this sort of peace that kind of radiates this uh, harmony between all of creation. Yesterday, um, my brother and his family had driven up here. I didn't know they were going to come up here. We'd picked up some weeks ago. My brother is building Jeeps. And I guess before Jeeps were Jeeps, they were Willys, something like that, yeah. So he got this old Willys body. Anyways, he had to come up here and get it. And so he and his family were here. And so we went over to the Museum for Science and Curiosity. I know it opened up at some point. I just kind of wanted to see what it was about. And I was reminded as we were going through this museum that there are all kinds of non-scriptural visions of, of where we're ultimately headed, right? Deep space exploration. I felt like going to Mars is kind of one vision of the kingdom come, right? We've just kind of expanded out into all the galaxies. YouTube lately has been wanting to send me these clips, I'm not sure why, of a show called House. I'm sure if any of you had ever watched it. But what's so funny about that show uh, time and again is it also kind of has this vision of the, the way that the world could be, a world in which we have all the pharmaceuticals to precisely prevent or treat every kind of physical ill that we, we could encounter. And then thinking about politics cycles, you often kind of hear the same sort of motifs show up, at least as of recently, about either whether it's debt-free education, universal health care, basic income. But there's kind of this vision of the way that the world could be that we could make and manufacture. For all those that don't think that manufacturing a lot of this stuff is, just think of all the, the systems that we need to kind of make these systems universal. In a very literal way, usually the, the way that these visions are spoken of is through, like, whether it's heavy machinery or manufacture, it's this product of human design and innovation. The problem that all of you know with a lot of these is that they often collapse back in on themselves historically, at least when people get an idea of like the social revolution or the technological revolution that'll bring the end of time. More recently, one of the other ways to respond to these visions is just to say it's all bunk, right? They're, they're, none of them are going to come. There's just only the cold, hard, empty reality of the present, which then just leads to indulging in the immediacy of the moment. What I love then so much is a contrast to all that about the scriptures is that when it talks about the kingdom come, it uses these wonderful organic and natural metaphors. Isaiah 11.1 1 talks about this righteous branch from the stump of Jesse. And trees are these really extraordinary things. You find them, they show up all the time in Scripture, right? They'll talk about especially the cedars of Lebanon. 
I myself think, at least around here, and especially out where I live and now Pastor Jeff and his family live, there are these extraordinarily big valley oaks that have been around for some of these hundreds of years, right? What a testament to this. Just It's something that's enduring. It's majestic. They're highly productive. Every year they're producing just thousands and thousands of leaves, of nuts, seeds. The stump of Jesse in Isaiah 11 refers back to Isaiah 6. The people of God are imagined as this gigantic tree, productive, enduring, majestic because of what God has done, and they've been hewed or cut down because of their unfruitfulness. Right? This is partly, I believe, what Tom here was reading. But, and I think that this is what's so extraordinary about using this metaphor for the kingdom come here. The power of this living world around us that God has made is not like a broken down machine. God's love and his life is more powerful than anything that sin can cut down. Thinking if you guys have ever seen Jurassic Park, there's that, um, I think it's Dr. Oh gosh, Ian Malcolm. Oh, thank you. And there's this, there's this scene where they're talking about like they've created all the dinosaurs but they're all females, so they're not going to reproduce. And he kind of has this little speech you give about how life finds a way. Life finds a way. There's just something that's so productive about life, it just cannot be stopped. And in this moment in Isaiah, uh, chapter 11, in that first verse, you kind of get that sense that God, in his life, in his spirit, even after this tree's been cut down and it looks dead, there's nevertheless now this righteous branch that springs up from it. And the power of the organic metaphor is that this is something that happens to all of us every day. All of you have probably seen trees that cut down and they send up these shoots. And yet before it happens, it always seems like when it's happening or when it starts to happen, there's something miraculous happening, right? That this dead tree is now alive again. This awaited for Savior, again, I think just the power of Isaiah 4, this anointed ruler that's spoken of grows directly from the family tree of the people of God. God isn't teleporting in from another dimension to beam us all away from creation like we're trying to get out of Dodge. I mean, this is right where and when you didn't expect it, on the one hand, from the tree that had been cut down. But then on the other hand, if you know anything about trees, you know anything about growth, it's also the place that you kind of did expect it. Isaiah 11.1 describes so precisely what we see happen so many centuries later in Jesus is that God sends his son born of a woman to reconcile the world. It seems at once seemingly impossible that God should become creation, that God should become man, and yet it's accomplished perfectly in Christ, who is human and also God, who is divine and created, who is mortal but also incorruptible. Right? Jesus is everything that this picture in Isaiah 11 gives us which we wouldn't be able to manufacture or make on our own, but somehow is nevertheless as certain as a stump sending up new shoots. And then as you continue with Isaiah 11, you see how this branch has the fullness of God bestowed on him. Um, one of the other psalms that I really love is uh, Psalm 133. And in that psalm, it gives us this Extraordinary image of chrism. It says, how blessed it is, it is, how blessed is it when um, people live together in unity? 
It's this oil upon the head, running down upon the beard, upon the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. And that image of chrism, of kind of oil being poured down and just kind of spilling. It's so abundant, it's so rich. There's this character of overflowing blessing. And this is that same image of the spirit that's given in this passage, a spirit of counsel, of might, and of understanding. The spirit is so thoroughly covering this righteous branch that it's flowing in, through, around, and from them. The passage would encourage us to almost think as though God himself was reigning in human form right there. As you could imagine that Jesus or the Christ was just down the street in the Capitol building. And then Isaiah does something so extraordinary in this passage. Because the vision of this righteous branch who has been anointed in the Spirit is um, united with these images of dominion and authority. In verse 4, that Becky read, He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall destroy the wicked. Words are very powerful. Anybody who's ever read Genesis 1 knows this. Dee, would you, oh, would you be able, did you draw that image for me? Can you bring it up here for me? Oh, this is perfect. Oh, yeah, no, this is, no, this is, this is incredible. Thank you. Right? I spoke, and I brought this into being. I spoke, and I brought this into being. No, Dee drew it for me. Thank you, Dee. But anybody who's sort of been in our world knows how powerful words can indeed bring things into existence. And you can imagine that as these words are spoken, he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall destroy the wicked, that this would have been almost a caption under images of kings and emperors in the ancient Near East. Because when they spoke, armies jumped at their command and they brought things into being. Their will was imposed on the world around them. But, but, you can see how Isaiah transforms precisely this language. He marries it then with what else is in this verse. That that same righteous branch is going to judge the peoples with equity and the poor with righteousness. You see, for all the ancient kings of the earth and even those today, in order to be able to rule, you have to have a base of support. And it has to be people have some kind of means, whether that's wealth, whether that's intellectual, whether that's physical, whether that's technological. You need to have somebody on your side because there are going to be people that oppose you if you try to get into a position of authority or leading or ruling. But in Isaiah's passage, this ruler doesn't have to make any bargains with those who are in power. And this ruler doesn't destroy his enemies. Notice it doesn't say that they're his enemies. It's the wicked who are destroyed. And I think what's so much more even profound about this Isaiah 11 passage is that every time this prophecy is read aloud, just as Jesus proclaims it when he's in his ministry, reads from another part of Isaiah, it's fulfilled here and now in this moment as Christ, who is the word, is spoken and strikes my conscience, and the breath of his spirit destroys all of my self-justification. See, Christ is the perfect ruler because he can destroy opposition without destroying the one who opposes him. He's able to destroy that which is rebellious, which is sinful in me, with, while all at the same time saving who I am. 
This is one of the profound things about this season. If we are willing, God is able to slay and kill that which is not of us or from God that's also in us. The righteous ruler here disciplines ultimately only to restore us and to restore all creation to its rightful place and belonging to him. It requires this extraordinary trust and surrender. And then the passage kind of moves to this glimpses of restored creation, right? And the lion shall lay down with the calf. I <laughs> uh, always get a kick out of that passage just because there's a paranormal expert that created something called the Mandela effect, that we're actually living in an alternate reality. It just makes me chuckle. It's all right. It's all just because there's the lion and the lamb. I'm convinced it's the lion and the lamb in Revelation because the lion of Judah is the lamb, and so people then remember Isaiah 11 as saying that the lion will lay down with the lamb. But you can go into conspiracy theories about how we live in an alternate dimension, and it used to say that if you want to. But there is this extraordinary thing. You, you guys know that when a lion shows up, and the scriptures say, you know, that the devil is like a prowling lion seeking to devour you. Or when Jesus talks about us being lambs and scattered by a wolf. Um, that there's something about predator and prey that just speaks of the world kind of at war and conflict. And so here we have these images, again, they're these images of creation as we know it, and yet somehow transformed, transposed, and changed. Somehow now in this wonderful shalom and peace. Isaiah 11 has us contemplate this image of what the coming kingdom will look like. And our faith demands that we have faith, that we believe in that vision. And it's that belief that then pulls us into it. In the same way that having no belief or trying to bracket out any vision of any end just makes us into people who are shaped for our own self-gratification. YOLO. You only live once. Or believing in this kind of final technological or social revolution tends to make people that are hungry for power and control and tend to be constantly dissatisfied and demonize those who don't agree with them. So also, this vision that Isaiah 11 shapes us. For that, I want to turn to the Romans passage, and it might be helpful just to hear a little bit of that. Let's see if I can find it here so it's fresh on your minds. Here we go. So from Romans 15 here. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him the Gentiles hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, 
so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. You know, the believers in first century Rome, to which Paul was writing this very passage, had all kind of visions of what the kingdom come would look like. Just like we do today, it wasn't necessarily space exploration, but there was all kinds of things being hawked and peddled about what the empire could finally be, or what all the, tradition, the traditional religions of that time with the gods, which just basically looked like our world, but, but bigger, or even philosophy. And like us, like Pastor Jeff was saying, they were caught in the midst of these two ages. I think if you presented many of those Christians with a, a very accurate description of alternative visions of the end, they would be able to reject it. But the question that they faced like we face is, how do you live in a world that seems to have so many contrary visions to this, to be in the world, but not also of the world? Paul here, as he's writing this letter to the Romans, as he does with some of his other letters, is dealing with these two sparring viewpoints about how to do that, how to live in the world but not be of the world. There were those who were practitioners of Mosaic law, and for them, the following that teaching, that law, was this reminder that we are a distinct people, that we're in the world but not of it. It made us in some ways distinctive and different. And then on the other hand, there were those who uh, were a part of the Freedom Party, right? Paul will kind of speak about who, for the most part, are able to forego most of the Mosaic Law, instead trying to express the heart of the greatest commandments that Jesus speaks about, loving God and loving neighbor, and being more free to participate in the culture or the traditions around, there, around them. Those who followed Mosaic Law saw this benefit and keeping distinct from the peoples around them. You've probably heard from me when I preach up here, I always have some kind of sympathy for those that were following Mosaic Law, just because there's something very, very powerful to assimilation. Um, Pastor Jeff, I want to say a couple weeks ago, was talking about it, or maybe in another context, but that imperial policy was for many of the Jews throughout the centuries that they had lived to resettle them in areas and then make sure that they kind of just get used to the other customs and they lose their distinction, their identity, and ultimately their faith, if it's successful, which is why following the Torah was so important. Anyone who's ever been raised in a holy tradition, holiness tradition knows something about keeping distinct from the world around them, right? It's not necessarily that alcohol in itself is bad, but there's something about it that the holiness tradition tried to pick out of that that, that recognized that so often becomes a gateway into becoming more and more like the world and going down a path that can ultimately come into conflict with our faith, with our belief. I think that those who are a part of the Mosaic Law practitioners might have seen that you, necess you didn't necessarily need to follow each and every day all the kosher laws or rules, but certainly they could see that there was a point on the meat that was sacrificed to idols. There was something about that that made clear this whole point and this whole reason that we're distinct, that we don't want to worship other gods or even get close to trying to worship them because there's something about them that always draws us to them. That if we're willing to get close, we can very easily get burned. No doubt the people who followed the Mosaic Law would have said that their ability to adhere to it, to be strict to it, to keep themselves purified or, or pure from um, being defiled by the world, is that this is the way of the strong. Perhaps those other believers are believers, but they're weaker than we are because we're able to be more dutiful, faithful. But on the other hand, the Freedom Party, 
would have grabbed hold of the fact that Christ preached the good news and welcomed as his disciples those who were sinners and those who were unfaithful. Jesus received them as his own, and in fact, he defended them from attacks against not having, you know, perfectly kept Mosaic law. And you could see probably how, on the other hand, that those in the Freedom Party would have thought that this was the way of the strong, that they didn't need all those rules or regulations for this feeling of control, that they would be able to keep their identity again because it was perfectly expressed in Christ. Now, you can see how that works, right? How each side to that, those who practiced Mosaic Law and those who were a part of the Freedom Party would have said, we're the strong ones, it's the other side that are the weak ones. This is where I think Paul is so brilliant here because Paul is talking about the weak and the strong in Romans 15. But what he wants to do is show what true strength and righteousness is to both of those viewpoints. In other words, how to live into a vision of Isaiah 11 in the present. It says in that first verse that we who are strong ought to put up with the failings of the weak and not please ourselves, for Christ did not please himself. And here's what we see in Christ. This is what Paul, I think, is just doing so extraordinarily here, that Christ is the one true son of Israel. He's the one who read and memorized scripture. He worshiped on the Sabbath. He traveled for the festivals. He upheld difficult points in Mosaic law like marriage, the whole thing about divorce. He had a kosher Passover meal on the night which we, on the night on which he was betrayed. He directed people, even after he had healed them, to be cleansed at the temple. Jesus here in his life desired to fulfill all righteousness. And as the Son of God, giving us this template and pattern for our lives, he invites us to practice as a part of being the people of God, even in all its imperfectness. To gather together as we are doing here in this time to worship, to share of ourselves, to do good, to preach good news, to confess our sin. The message with Jesus' life was not, this is something that we have to do. You guys got to do this in order to earn salvation, right? Try to earn, try to earn your place in your family. What Jesus says in his life, what he represents through all of his faithfulness is that this is something that we're lovingly invited to do because it draws us as earthly, as bodily close as we can be to this joy and peace that the world doesn't have because it brings us here to this table where Christ himself promised to be present, both in created and uh, in, ultimately in, in God who is spirit in his spiritual form. Jesus is obviously not a slave to the letter of Mosaic law. In his life, he's animated by its spirit and his life-giving power. But he also leads this life of righteousness, of dutifully being there at the Sabbath, of memorizing scripture, of doing good, because he believes that this is the way that's going to allow him to wholly give himself away in love. And I think for Paul and for the Roman Christians, this is something that's extremely telling. And for us, even this morning, you're... I hope that none of you feel like you're extorted to come here or to serve or to lead or to tithe or to be a part of ministry or outreach or events here. I believe that what Paul writes here is, is that we do this in this moment as we're in this imperfect world but also living out this vision of Isaiah because as we submit and conform ourselves voluntarily to it, God uses it in ways to break unholy patterns in us 
which maybe we're unaware of, so that we might better live wholly and completely for the gospel. I hope that if you don't see it necessarily, Christ lives the fullness of both those convictions that I mentioned earlier. Both being able to uphold all righteousness in his life, being as faithful as he can, submitting himself to the people of God and to those practices and to that pattern of life, but then also, ultimately, free to love others completely. So, if Christ shows us how the kingdom is lived then in his life, I feel like the Matthew passage ultimately invites us into how do we live, how do we become more like Christ here and now? And I think for that, you just have to listen to the words of that Matthew passage that I read. John the Baptist, who says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. near. And as he speaks to the Pharisees, bear fruits worthy of repentance. For when the one who comes after John the Baptist comes, he will gather the wheat but burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. On the one hand, it's hard for our world for our world to hear the words that John the Baptist preaches here. And I think that I, I probably know that in part that's because a fair share of those who share my role as preachers want to make sure that they're heard. They want to feel that they're heard, and so perhaps in preaching these words of repentance, it comes more out of a desire to shock and to fear other people. The second most powerful force in the world, I'm convinced, is fear right after love, but it acts a lot quicker. But it's all flash and no substance. The scriptures here, and what's so beautiful about them is, is that I believe that they speak these words of repentance out of love. Right? Like if you were to watch me sit down, with a large bowl of delicious, spicy chicken wings, which wouldn't be good for me, any of you who don't know me. This would, this would wreak havoc on my system. And instead of just watching me eat those things and do that to myself, Pastor Jeff runs up, grabs the bowl, and just starts eating them. In the net effect, at the end of it, I'm, I don't eat the chicken wings either way. I mean, he could, of course, berate me for it. But there's, there's this wonderful spirit, maybe there's a playful spirit there, but, but of love and trying to, recognizing that there are paths that I can walk down and there are ways of kind of conforming or changing my behavior to better suit for my ultimate flourishing. And I think that that's how the scripture, how John the Baptist and how Jesus ultimately speak to us. That repentance is the response when we encounter the grace, the mercy, and the love of God. Ultimately, so that we might become like Christ. I believe that we're called to repent because that vision of Isaiah 11 reminds me so often that I believe the lies of the world or the lies in my mind that say that I have to be the world, like the world in how I act or in how I drive or in how I relate to my friends or my family or use money or go into conflicts with people. Isaiah 11 reminds us all that the truth is, is that we're not finally who we are and the world isn't finally what it will be. And ultimately, that I'm not going to bring it about. It's like new shoots from a stump. The miracle of life and that kingdom come is that it's both at once so natural because God has created and made everything and purposed it for this ultimate destination and yet also so miraculous in a way that we can't quite imagine, envision, or create. 
I'm convinced that repentance and the gift that Matthew 3, John the Baptist gives us is this gift because it allows us in this moment here to experience a conversion of our being that takes a lifetime. Maybe one of the most important details about this Matthew 3 preaching is that John here is preaching to faithful Jews. And the repentance that he speaks of isn't this one and done event. Certainly for many of us, there could be a moment that we would point out where we cried in our heart to God for the very first time, save me, O Lord. And God brought us into the household and the family of God. But that same cry echoes throughout our lives, right? I always love this image when talking, of course, again, in the holiness tradition, we'll talk about entire sanctification or Christian perfection. And I feel like one of the best definitions I ever heard of that was of um, a golfer who hits, they swing, and the ball goes all the way, and it's a hole-in-one, right? It's a perfect shot. And that ball is a perfect shot, both when it goes in the hole, but also all along the arc and the trajectory of it, right? At every moment, it's a perfect shot, even long before it's reached its final destination. And somehow that encapsulates what entire sanctification and Christian perfection is, that there is this ultimate goal, this destination that we're moving towards. Even if we haven't perfectly arrived there yet, we're hoping, we're trusting, we're surrendering into it. And it still gives us the freedom to say, you know, I'm not there, I'm not perfect. I believe, again, for us as the church, there can be this temptation at times to run away from being able to be honest with ourselves or honest with others about our weaknesses. But the truth of the matter is we don't have to come across as perfect to other people because the testimony and the witness is something that God ultimately can only do in us. We can't do for ourselves. We don't have to sustain an image. In fact, it's very profound, I think, that as Christians we're given this gift of being able to boast in our weaknesses like Paul because it just testifies again to the strength of what God is doing in us. So for Advent, again, the gift of part of this time is, is that indeed that act of repentance, that act of admitting that we're not all that we, we have should have, we're not all that we are yet to be. Um, but yet we're moving on that journey, or God is moving us on that journey to make us more and more who he has created us to be. So my prayer for you this morning is that as Christ invites us to this table, we remember and we see here the figure expressed in Isaiah 11, that righteous branch, who has won us true peace through his own blood, whose judgment ultimately on the world was to die for us while we were yet sinners. Christ doesn't please himself, and he didn't fear others. He sought simply to fulfill the righteousness of God and to preach good news to the poor and to the lost. Pastor Jeff has said it before, when you're asked to come up to this table, it is an altar call. And like the freedom party in Paul's day might say, it's not that you have to do anything or there's some sort of special mechanism in order to bring repentance with you. It might be nothing more than just asking God in this moment just to kind of help purify and refine your conscience, to allow you to be freed from or set apart from or released from anything this week that was less than what God would have intended for you. I think all that's okay. We're expected to be on this journey with Christ. And maybe my hope and my prayers, again, as you come to this table, you just are able to receive the gift of his life, of his love, of his freedom. Shall we pray together? Lord our God, it's so wonderful this time of year again to be able to hear those passages, to just meditate on the vision that you give us of 
the wolf laying down with the lamb and the lion with the calf of the righteous branch who finally reigns and rules in such a way, not for petty gain, but in righteousness and justice and equity, with all love, hoping to restore and to redeem all things. Lord, we pray as we come to this table that you might give us repentant hearts, not because you're seeking to burden us down with guilt or shame, but actually to free us from those things, to allow us to live into our identity as sons and daughters of God, and that's casting off the things of darkness and putting on the armor of light. Lord, we ask that you allow us with thanksgiving and joy to approach this table. We ask all this in the name of your Son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you as in your spirit, as one God forever and ever.